Well, happy Mother's Day. Let's talk about anger. <laughs> oh, goodness. We carefully planned this entire sermon series with the goal of landing on anger on Mother's Day, being able to preach anger to mothers on Mother's Day. So we made it. <laughs> we did it. We've arrived. Or somebody has drawn the short straw. Just kidding. We didn't plan this on purpose, but we also didn't decide not to talk about anger on Mother's Day, so do with that what you will. Um, maybe some moms in this room can relate to uh, everyone's friend Jill Poole, who said to me this week, I never knew I had an anger problem until I became a mother. Maybe some dads in the room can relate. It's not that parents are the only ones who struggle with anger, but parenting, and especially mothering, I will say, demands a kind of dying to self that is really hard. And usually, by which I mean pretty much always, reveals maybe some anger that we weren't as aware of before we had to die those deaths. Um, I, as a father, had a moment of anger this morning. It's kind of funny. When you know you're preaching on anger all week, like my antennas were up, right? And I was like watching. And I think by Monday, I had too many examples of anger, not necessarily just in my life, but just in my, in my observations. I had too many to, I just stopped collecting them. But then um, as it would happen uh, on Mother's Day, I woke up and uh, within an hour of uh, getting my day going, found myself um, speaking harshly to one of my children and uh, stewing for a moment in the kitchen, trying to uh, keep things rolling towards a happy and celebratory Mother's Day while everyone's avoiding me and won't even look at me. And, um, and, and the Holy Spirit was, was sweet, and uh, the conviction of, I'm about to go preach about this in a few hours, led me upstairs to, uh, to seek reconciliation for harsh words that I spoke to one of my children. So this is who's preaching to you today about anger. Uh, but before anyone tunes out and thinks that this sermon is only geared towards angry parents, let me read you a chapter from an excellent book on the topic of anger uh, called Good and Angry by the late, great David Paulison. And David, it's a great book, but this chapter, chapter 2, it's titled, Do You Have a Serious Problem with Anger? So listen to what David writes. Yes. End of chapter. <laughs> Questions for discussion. <laughs> That's the chapter. Chapter 3 is titled, um, How Does That Shoe Fit? So he lets you grapple with it. Here's what I would say. You don't argue with Dr. Pallison. You can't argue with Dr. Pallison because he's with Jesus now. Um, but I will save you the suspense. You don't argue with Dr. Pallison because he's right. We all struggle with anger. We all have a serious problem with anger. Now, there is such a thing as righteous anger, and that's good. That reflects God. But Pallison says we aren't actually very good at that either. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here, so that's not what we're going to talk about. Um, but what Jesus is talking about in today's passage is the kind of anger that's comparable to murder and should be taken very seriously. We're going to try following Jesus' train of thought in these words that we have in Matthew 5 and seek to let it shape us into the kinds of people 
that Jesus says make up his kingdom. For I tell you, we heard last week, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are the words that concluded the passage we looked at last week. And Jesus' very next words in the sermon are about anger. And as he speaks, it becomes very clear that he's talking to every one of us, not just parents. So we're going to break this passage down into three sections that I hope will help us just pay attention to what Jesus is saying. Keep your Bible open um, so that you can make sure I'm not making anything up. But we're going we're gonna to break this down into three sections. First, um, would you pray with me for the kind of heart that can receive hard things uh, that we need to hear? Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is perfect. It's sure. It's right. It's pure. It's clean. It's true. And it's righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold and sweeter than honey. By your words we are warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Father, may our hearts be the kind that hear and receive and meditate on and delight in and do and follow and keep and trust and bear much fruit. We offer you hearts that need your help. Teach us how to live lives worthy of your name. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You have heard that it was said, and then Jesus quotes the sixth of the Ten Commandments. We're going to see Jesus pluck a few of the Ten Commandments over the next several passages, um, as well as just some other laws, as well as just some other traditions of men uh, that have gained prominence. And he's not so much elevating certain commandments over others here, but he's clarifying gravely wrong interpretations that people are teaching and that people are living with in regards to the commandments of God. So reminder from last week, we're going to hear Jesus say a whole lot of, you have heard it said, but I say to you. This is not Jesus disregarding the Old Testament or abolishing it or relaxing it, as some people accused him of doing. This is him explaining it and correcting wrong understandings of it. And as we're about to see, everyone who accused Jesus of, Jesus of relaxing the commandments of God is about to be staring at their shoes as soon as he gets to this part of the sermon. The sixth commandment says, you shall not murder. And that's where Jesus begins. And then he proceeds to explain and correct people's wrong understanding of what that great commandment actually entails. Three corrections we're going to look at. Correction number one. Jesus says, it's more radical than you think. Correction number one. Jesus says, it's more radical than you think. Look at, look at verse 21 again. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus doesn't say, murder's actually not that big of a deal. That commandment's overrated. Jesus doesn't say, 
murder sparingly. He says the exact opposite. The life and well-being of every person is such a big deal that the very words you speak to them or about them matter a whole lot to God. It's a matter of life and death, we could say. Why is murder such a big deal? Because people are such a big deal. And every time you devalue another person made in the image of God, God takes notice. So Jesus steps in and says, don't be so deceived into thinking that all you have to do is refrain from physically killing somebody to remain innocent of breaking God's law. It's way more radical than you think. Much of what Jesus does in this sermon and throughout his ministry is demonstrate that the law of God is far more radical than people have been led to believe. Now, the word radical comes from the Latin word radix, which means root. In other words, the commands of God are concerned with the root, not merely the fruit. The heart, not merely the outward actions. So Jesus is saying that those whose anger boils over in hateful words and insults are guilty before God in a way that is comparable to those whose anger boils over into actual full-blown murder. We're welcome to tell God that he's overreacting here, but he's welcome to tell us that he's God and that we can go ahead and stick with his evaluation of right and wrong. So whoever's angry with his brother, whoever insults his brother, whoever says, you fool, is liable to judgment and prosecution and punishment. When Jesus talks about the kind of anger that's liable to judgment, he means the attitude of heart that believes I'm superior to that person or those people, they lack a certain kind of value according to my righteous judgment. He gives us those two examples of what he means. You might see a footnote in your Bible that says that the word translated insults is the Greek word raka. I'm doubting many of you have called somebody raka uh, this week or recently. But uh, best I can tell... Back then, saying raka to somebody would be comparable to us calling somebody a moron. So it's, uh, it's, it's like calling somebody like they're empty-headed. They're worthless. You're a moron. And then the word fool, on the other hand, if raka is aimed at somebody's kind of empty head, the word fool is aimed at someone's heart and character. I don't think Jesus is ranking these offenses from least to greatest. I think he's helping us see the range of attitudes that he, that he has in mind here. So whether you're expressing contempt for somebody's head or somebody's heart, Jesus says you're wrong. He says it's not okay. Whether you're calling someone a moron or a fool or fill in the blank with whatever your choice insult may be, Jesus says you're guilty of breaking God's law, which is more radical than you think. His point if it's not clear enough, is that God is paying attention to our hearts. And as Jesus will say at another point, the words that come out of our mouths are an accurate reflection of what's going on in our hearts. 
the same anger and hatred that's behind actual murder is also behind insults and slander and harsh words. So you may never actually put a physical end to another person's life and yet be guilty before God of breaking the all-important sixth commandment. I can't imagine a more relevant passage for the week that we've just lived through in our country and the moment we find ourselves in right now. As disciples of Jesus, we ought to oppose the legalized murder of unborn babies made in the image of God. It's wrong. But as disciples of Jesus, we need to also realize that before the eyes of God, we may find ourselves as guilty as the people that we're angry at, even if they endorse killing babies, because of the words that we speak about them. It's not just, are you angry about the right things, but are you angry in the right ways? There's most certainly a wrong way to be right. And name-calling and character assassination are never fitting responses for the disciple of Jesus. Let's pause here for a moment for some personal reflection and evaluation, everyone's favorite thing. How does your heart respond to what Jesus is saying? How does your, your heart respond to these, to these words, to this, this revelation that Jesus is bringing to us? There may be some in this room who hear this and you're cut to the heart. Maybe you've never heard this before. Maybe you're hearing it with what feels like new ears or a new heart. You're feeling the, the weight of Jesus' words because you thought you were doing pretty well in the don't murder people category. And now you realize that God might see things a little bit, a little bit differently. These words might be unsettling to you as they certainly were to much of Jesus' original audience. And rightly so. And then maybe there's other people in this room who you feel like you're hearing this for the thousandth time. And you get it. God cares about our hearts. Anger is the same as murder. Yada, yada, yada. Perhaps you hear this and your reflex response is to say, I know I'm a hopeless sinner, but thank God for his grace that covers my sin. If that's kind of more or less you, listen to me carefully. I don't want to be misunderstood, but I think this matters. I hope that somewhere in your understanding of these words, your desperate need for Jesus' grace comes front and center. And you realize that because your heart is guilty of murder, too many times to count, you have no hope of righteousness before God except for the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. That is true. But notice, that's not how Jesus commands us to respond to this teaching. It's not how he commands us to respond to our anger problem. There are some people who believe that what Jesus is really doing in the Sermon on the Mount is basically just helping us understand how hopeless we are apart from him. Now listen to me. We are hopeless apart from Jesus. We need a righteousness from outside of ourselves to stand right before God. 
But an absolutely essential part of what it means to have faith in Christ is to listen to his words and do what he says. And he's about to say something that doesn't look like throwing your hands up in the air and saying, praise God for grace and forgiveness because I'm an angry person. Now back to my Facebook rant. There is a wrong, and I would say demonic, understanding of grace that says, since I'm forgiven, I don't need to take my sin as seriously as Jesus says I should. Cheap grace is forgiveness without repentance, Bonhoeffer said. Jesus never offers that to anyone. And in the words that are about to follow, Jesus is about to tell us what repentance looks like for people who struggle with anger. Every one of us ought to evaluate the sincerity of our faith in Jesus not by how we respond to his offer of forgiveness, but by how we respond to his call to repentance. I'm going to say that again. Every one of us ought to evaluate the sincerity of our faith in Jesus by how we respond, not to the offer of forgiveness, but to the call to repentance. That brings us to Jesus' second correction in this passage. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder, is more radical than you think, number one. And number two, it's more important than you think. It's more important than you think. Read the next two verses with me. Jesus says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Let that sink in for a second. Jesus just said that there is something in the life of a worshiper of God that must be prioritized above the worship of God. Or maybe it would be more accurate to say, Jesus just told us that the worship of God is a bigger category of your life than you think. It's not just confined to Sundays. It's not just confined to those moments when you're singing in your car. It's not just confined to those moments where you're praying in the morning. I think Jesus just told us that the worship of God is not confined to a particular corner of our lives, but actually encompasses all of life, down to the details of our relationships and the day-to-day interactions with other people. Down even to the thoughts of our hearts and the words that escape our hearts through our lips regarding people made in the image of God. Is that your understanding of worship? I think it's Jesus's. Must be what he means because certainly the chief end of man is to glorify God. How could anything get in the way of worshiping God? Unless every part of our lives is related to worshiping God. That's why Jesus doesn't have to apologize for telling people to prioritize reconciliation with a brother over a particular act of worship to God. 
the heart you bring to worship is the same heart you're bringing to all your relationships. Jesus' brother James gets at that same idea when he writes about the hypocrisy of our tongues in James 3. I think it'll show up above my head. He says, The tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Jesus says, don't draw near to God seeking mercy and grace if you're unwilling to draw near to that other person with that same mercy and grace. This isn't works righteousness. It's completely a matter of the sincerity of our faith in a God of mercy and grace who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. How can you choke out a dude who owes you ten bucks When God has just forgiven you a debt of 10 trillion bucks. Jesus' parable. Jesus says, don't come up in here like that. 1 John 4.20, John writes, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So you want to honor and glorify God? Go and be reconciled to that person who has something against you. Go and live out this gospel of peace that you speak and sing of. As disciples of Jesus, you guys, we've been given this ministry of reconciliation. It's like what we're here for. It's what we're supposed to be busy doing. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How can ministers of reconciliation do anything but run toward reconciliation? This is our thing. Like if, 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 if people, if like groups have a thing, like this is our thing. Reconciliation. Ambassadors for Christ with the message of reconciliation, imploring people to be reconciled to God, What good is a message of reconciliation on the lips of those who choose not to pursue reconciliation with each other? These things ought not to be so. And notice Jesus' choice of words. He's so tricky. If you remember that your brother has something against you, dang it. But he's not right. He stops short of saying that this brother has something legitimate against you, right? He doesn't leave room for you to judge whether or not he or she is right to have something against you. It just says if you remember that somebody has something against you. That's the posture of those who have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. Just looking everywhere for opportunities for reconciliation. 
wherever it's necessary. Even if I'm certain that I'm not in the wrong, if there's a broken relationship where someone is holding something against me, then I, as someone who in Christ has become the righteousness of God, I've gained everything I need, I have nothing left to lose, I can draw near and as far as it depends on me, seek to live at peace with my brother and sister. For the disciple of Jesus, reconciliation is our ministry and all of life is worship. Let's pause again for some personal reflection. What if you're that person that Jesus is talking about? You're driving to church on Sunday and suddenly the Holy Spirit impresses on your heart the state of an unreconciled relationship that you have with someone. Maybe it's your spouse sitting in the seat next to you. Maybe it's the kid in the back seat. Maybe it's a roommate or a family member who was on the receiving end of your anger recently. Maybe it's the coworker who thinks you're a Christian but knows you're a jerk. Maybe it's the faceless person online who has been thoroughly assured that your views are the right ones and therefore he or she or they may as well die a just and humiliating public death. So what if the Holy Spirit brings something like this to your mind as you drive to church and your response is to shrug it off or justify yourself in the courtroom of your own mind and you walk into church and raise your hands in worship, raise your heart in prayer. Say you don't respond to the Holy Spirit's gentle conviction that day, but you just press on in your Christian life. Day after day, week after week, month after month, dragging unreconciled relationships along behind you. Do you think that your heart stays soft towards the things of God? Do you think your joy in the Lord remains steady and vibrant? Do you think the word of God will taste sweeter than honey and will be more desirable than gold? If you ignore the Holy Spirit's prompting and Jesus' straightforward words, do you think God's grace in your life will be unhindered? Not because of some sort of resistance in his heart, but apparently some sort of resistance in yours. Jesus will go on to say in Matthew 6 that if we don't forgive others their sins against us, God won't forgive us our sins against him. Peter writes to husbands in 1 Peter 3 that their prayers will be hindered if they're harsh with their wives. How much thought do you give to the possibility that your experience of joyful, peaceful fellowship with God may be hindered by your refusal to receive his words and respond accordingly? How much joyful fellowship with God might you be leaving on the table because of the resistance in your heart to hear and receive and do what Jesus says? What a shame. 
the issue of unresolved anger is more important than we think. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words in a day of extreme animosity between various groups of people. It's a long quote, but I think it's worth it. Try to track with me. I think it's going to be, boom. This is what he wrote. Individuals, as well as church communities, who intend to enter God's presence with contemptuous or unreconciled hearts are playing games with an idol. As long as we withhold service and love from a sister or brother, as long as he or she remains a target of our contempt, as long as a sister or brother has something against me or Jesus' community, our offerings will remain unaccepted. It's not just my own anger which gets between me and God, but even the fact that a brother or sister exists whom I have abused, whom I have humiliated and dishonored, and who has something against me. So the community of Jesus' disciples ought to examine itself as to whether it is here and there at fault towards sisters and brothers, and whether, for the sake of the world, it has participated in hating, despising, and humiliating others. To do these things is to be guilty of their murder. Jesus' community today ought to examine whether, at the moment, it enters God's presence for prayer and worship, many accusing voices rise up between it and God and hinder its prayers. Jesus' community ought to examine whether it has given a sign of Jesus' love, which preserves and supports and protects lives to those whom the world has despised and dishonored. Otherwise, the most correct form of worship, the most pious prayer, and the bravest confession will not help, but will give witness against it because it has ceased following Jesus. I can't think of anything more healthy for our church and more honoring to God than if next week, at this time, this room is empty because we are all running around tracking down everybody who has something against us. Seeking reconciliation as far as we need to. Now, preferably we'll do that in the next six days so that we can be back here together next Sunday and worship together. But if Sunday at four o'clock is your only slot to do it, don't come. Go and be reconciled. That could be the healthiest thing for our church healthiest thing for your own heart. We are only playing church if we don't take this kind of thing seriously. We're offering empty worship, clinging to cheap grace, bringing hindered prayers, and very likely holding the Spirit of God at arm's length when we gather together. Brother or sister in Christ, as far as it depends on you, please do not let this be true of our church. This is way more important than we think. Let's look at Jesus' third correction. Third correction. It's more urgent than you think. It's more radical than you think. It's more important than you think. And it's more urgent than you think. Look at verse 25. Jesus says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. 
So if Jesus' first illustration was to show us the importance of reconciliation, prioritizing it even above an act of worship, then this second illustration is here to press upon us the urgency of reconciliation. It's an urgent matter. And he uses a little real-life scenario that people of his day would have understood easily, and it's not hard for us to wrap our minds around. Someone has something against you, and he or she is taking you to court in search of justice. Don't let it get that to that point, Jesus says. Don't wait for someone else to work this out for you. You do it. And if you don't, you're going to find yourself at the mercy of a legal process that will show no mercy. This is not Jesus saying that nothing should ever go to court. Some offenses must, and I think Jesus would agree. This is Jesus saying there's an urgency to making right what you can make right before it goes too far. There's an urgency of making things right when you can, when you've wronged another person or they've been wounded by your anger. But you know what most of us like to do? We like to put things off. Right? We like to put things off. We like to sweep things under the rug. We like to avoid uncomfortable conversations, awkward conversations. We, we, most of us don't like admitting that we're wrong. Most of us don't love drawing near to people who have something against us. We'll find all kinds of excuses to put it off. That's what most of us are like. And Jesus knows what most of us are like. And he warns us, don't be like that. Don't put it off. If you've been angry with someone, spoken harshly with someone, insulted someone, or given some other reason for someone to hold something against you, don't delay in making it right. Because not only are you at risk of hindering your fellowship with God, you're also in danger of things going from bad to worse. Notice how Jesus is looking out for you here says, it's in your best interest to make things right as quickly as you can. This is certainly true on a human level. Relationships can deteriorate quickly. Sorrows can multiply quickly. But it's also true on a much greater scale, isn't it? Delayed repentance is dangerous. Delayed obedience is really dangerous. Our hearts have the ability to grow hard pretty quick. That's scary stuff. Because there's a day of reckoning coming. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says this, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We are on our way. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Jesus regularly tells his disciples to live with that day in view. Leave no outstanding balances. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. If you have unreconciled relationships, don't delay in making them right. As Paul writes in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
Trust Jesus when he says it's more urgent than you think. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, those who live by the letter of the law instead of by the spirit of the law, intent of the law, if your righteousness, unless your righteousness exceeds that of those guys, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Disciples of Jesus, citizens of that kingdom, take seriously the radical nature of God's command against murder. It's a matter of the heart. Disciples of Jesus take seriously the importance of reconciliation, realizing that your very relationship with God is involved here. And disciples of Jesus take seriously the urgency of reconciliation, knowing that delayed obedience is not a game worth playing. Now, we're in a stretch of, the, of, of the, the Lord's Sermon on the Mount that is very much concerned here with a call to righteous living. And at least at the surface, it doesn't seem to offer much in the way of gospel comfort, right? But let's step back for a minute here before we close and remember whose mouth these words are coming out of. Jesus makes it clear that all of us are guilty before God. We've all hated and harmed other people in our anger and our pride. We live in a world marked by murder and hatred and broken relationships of every kind. But Jesus is talking about a kingdom where that's not going to be true anymore. He's inviting people to come and be a part of that kind of kingdom. And to start living as if it's already here. Jesus is teaching and demonstrating that there's actually a new way to be a human. And because we are still people who need to do things like go and be reconciled, because we still mess up, because we are still people who need to do things like go and be reconciled, Jesus has not only invited us to something better, but he's made a way for it to be possible. Jesus came as the perfect picture of what he's just told us to do. Knowing that we had something against God in our foolish rebellion and disobedience, God the Father looked to his Son and said, Go, be reconciled. And Jesus, though he was in the form of God, emptied himself and came to us. Humbled himself, went low as the offended party, took the form of a servant, was obedient to the point of death on a cross to make payment for our sins. He received the judgment that our sins, that our anger is liable to. He left his throne in order to walk with us along the way to the courtroom of God, giving us the ability to settle with our righteous accuser before it costs us everything. And the terms of settlement were not something we provided, but what God himself provided. While we were enemies, Paul writes, 
we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Jesus isn't calling us to do something he hasn't already done. And him in perfect innocence. He now invites us to join him, living as citizens of his kingdom, which is already here and not yet fully. This is the gospel. And we're going to respond to it like we do each week, taking the Lord's Supper. If you're serving the Lord's Supper, you can start making your way up this way. If you're living by faith in Jesus, then your then his death is now your death. His life is now your life. You know that your sin, things like your anger and hatred towards others made in the image of God, has separated you from your God. And you know that Jesus drank the cup of the Father's righteous anger toward our sin so that people with serious anger problems like me and you could receive his righteousness. And you receive his invitation to live on a mission of reconciliation. If that's you, you're going to come and receive the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus as a remembrance and as a participation in his death and his life. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm going to ask you to just hang out in your seat for the next few minutes while other people come forward. But I want to encourage you to spend that moment reflecting on your life, maybe even the specific category of anger and hatred in your life. The things Jesus is saying are such a big deal before God. If you just want to sit in your seat and just reflect on that, there's going to be people coming forward for the Lord's Supper. They're not better than you. They just realize that Jesus is their only hope. Maybe today you're thinking the same thing. We invite you to do that. There's going to be people in the back of the room for the next 10 minutes or so who would love to pray for anyone, anyone who's interested in some new mercies today. Maybe even some freedom from anger that has hindered your fellowship with God for too long now. Don't pass that up. That's just, that's just too good to pass up. Let's every one of us respond to the Holy Spirit today. You may come. Mm-hmm.